five, four, three, two, one, and we're live. Welcome to a Wise Ass Response. This is MK Hamlin, a new podcast for you to enjoy, you to listen to, you to remark upon with you and your friends. Uh, this podcast is a vehicle, it's a means by which I can connect with you and share with you what I am working on. I am moving towards my first novel, publishing my first novel. Do I have an end date in mind, a target date for publication when you'll get it in your hands? Not yet, not even a figment of my imagination yet. But we're going to work towards that, and we're going to use the principles that I learned at working for many software companies, many design agencies in San Francisco. That was a long, long, long time ago. It's a technique that worked very well for me, and now I'm going to bring it into my new life. I'm a houseman, I'm a wannabe writer, I'm a father, I'm all sorts of different roles anyways. We're going to bring that all together in this wonderful opportunity right now. This podcast will come out once every two weeks. It coincides with the end of a burst of work I'll do. Today I'm going to share that burst of work. That's the point of the podcast. I'll share the work that we did. I'll give my own feedback from the round table in my mind. And then we'll move into looking at the process that went down for the past two weeks. We'll inspect the process, understand what happened, and think about how we can make that process better, more efficient for the next two weeks. If there's time, we'll even get into starting to plan out the work for the next two weeks. But that's a little bit ahead of us, all right? Shall we begin with reading the burst of work for this past two weeks? I think we shall. Talking Around the Dining Table in My Mind by M.K. Hamlin My daughter's third birthday is approaching. Mental movies of birthday cakes are showing up without even asking. One, a chocolate cake dressed to look like a farm scene, is topped with green grass frosting, sugar horses, cows, and chickens. Three candles are on fire. In my mind, I see family and friends gathered round as I carry the flaming farm to my daughter. Her eyes grow brighter and larger, reflecting the lit candles. I see approving nods from my mother and mother-in-law. I am a good dad. The cake tastes good, too. What a mind that can produce scene after scene like this, requiring zero effort on my part. I don't even have to ask for them, and they show up all day long. But the focusing part of my mind is what will allow me to find a recipe, purchase the ingredients, follow the instructions, dress the cake, and so on. It's the focusing part that allows me to be a good dad. In my shot glass for a brain, that focusing part is named Mr. Micromanager. You might say, oh, that's just the ego. You're talking about the ego. But have you ever read a description of the ego? Have you ever read Freud's translated descriptions? They're complex and hard to wrap your head around. I prefer to use my own definition of the mind's focusing agent based upon my own experiences as a 41-year-old native New Yorker living in Nowheresville, Germany, with two kids, a family van, an ancient career as designer, 
and a new career as a houseman slash wannabe writer. So how well do you know your Mr. Micromanager? Are you using someone else's definition? I know mine well. Let me tell you about him, because I am letting him go. His replacements have just arrived. In my imagination, Mr. Micromanager is almost blind and wears thick glasses. His view of me and my world is out of focus. He often does not hear what I say, because he is deaf in one ear. The non-functioning ear simply hangs there for decoration. His nose is blocked up, missing the subtle sense of life, and is snoring away at night, keeping my partner awake. But Mr. Micromanager's mouth? It's as wide as Fifth Avenue. Four lanes of traffic, pedestrian sidewalks, subway entrances, and a never-ending stream of beauty, nonsense, hustle-bustle, and wannabes trying to trick you into betting all you got that the ball is under the middle cap. In the spring of 2017, I began writing my first novel, and I have around 600 pages completed. However, less than 1% has been shared, and I've received no feedback on what's working or what's not. A few deadlines were set, and most of them missed. Publishing? Not even in sight. Mr. Micromanager tells me that my writings are never ready to share. Are you crazy, he says in my mind. These ideas suck. The language is shit. Your teachers must have been illiterates. Your friends will think you're pathetic. You only get one shot, and you're going to waste it with this? No. Keep working. Work harder. Wake up earlier. Get your wife to help more. It's unfair how much housework you have. You can't expect to finish with these other responsibilities. Get it better, and then you can share. I have failed at publishing my first novel without really knowing it. And millions of individuals are not laughing at my funny stories. Millions of people are not shedding tears in release of their old limiting beliefs. And millions of readers are not moving into union with the warring parts of their minds and bodies because I'm blocking myself from sharing. For goodness sake, Stallone made Rocky in 1976. The world's need new myths and stories to inspire. Instead of continuing to choose to listen to Mr. Micromanager's dire predictions, which he says not out of malice, but to keep me safe and secure, there must be another aspect of my mind I can listen to. I need someone that will push me to walk towards the most scary, uncertain experiences. And I am not suggesting a little voice that tells me to try to skydive without a parachute, but clearly the approach I'm taking is not getting me where I want to go. In 2016, my wife and I left San Francisco for a tiny town in Germany, not, from, not far from where she grew up. She was not thrilled. Despite both of us having lucrative jobs, we had been priced out of our swanky San Francisco loft. 
Once in Germany, I was no longer an impressive design manager, but a houseman. I had known that my responsibilities would become child care, cooking, cleaning, shopping, washing, folding, sorting, and so on, but I soon resented it all. This isn't us, Mr. Micromanager raged. This isn't fair. This isn't what we should, we should be doing, he would shout. For months and months, I cooked uninspiring dinners and dumped fresh laundry into drawers. I wanted to transform my life, but a houseman's day is from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., seven days a week. There's no PTO, there's no sick leave, and there's no salary. It's physically exhausting work, and you've got to be well organized in your food and activity planning. It was easier to accept that I was a victim of an unfair life instead of giving up on sleep or playtime in order to spend time creating a new life for myself. And millions of men and women erupt each morning with the same volcanic hatred at the mental movies of how their day will be spent. Wake up, meat sack. You can do more than this. A voice in their head screams. You're not living up to your potential. Do something. However, facing the discomfort of changing one's life, the uncertainty of how to do it, wondering where the money will come from, and comparing oneself to the liars on social media faking the high life, sends these millions of men and women to numbing agents like TV, food, drugs, video games, and so on. Instead of continuing to choose to listen to Mr. Micromanager's blame game speeches, I should choose to listen to the other part of my mind that tells me to scratch claw and do whatever it takes without excuses to get myself into the extraordinary life I seek. As I condition myself, I will do it faster. It might never be fun, but it's what needs to be done. In 2011, I quit an impressive job at a large software company in order to build my ideas for a cool meditation app. At the time, the market portrayed meditation as Tibetan script, wind chimes, and waterfalls. It was all bullshit. I headed to my bedroom, and Mr. Micromanager yelled at me to work. However, he wasn't satisfied with my efforts and called in his partner, Mr. Complicated. The two of them had me focusing on everything outside the core of my new product idea, like the accounting, the business structure, and researching ancient arcane forms of meditation. By the time I shared my design ideas, the cash to hire developers was almost gone, and I returned to working for someone else. Mr. Micromanager remarked, Isn't this just easier? I listened to Mr. Micromanager about my ideas sucking and became afraid to put myself out there where I might be rejected. Instead of listening to Mr. Micromanager's advice to remain safe and secure, I should not quit on the irrational and unexplainable calling of my soul. Seven years later, meditation has hit the mainstream and I might have walked into that extraordinary life. 
Today, there are a lot of tools and techniques that might have helped me get my first novel published already, while simultaneously managing the household and children. Getting Things Done, or GTD, is a system for managing time and tasks. A key part of the process is the daily purge of small tasks floating around your mind. Getting all those to-do items out of your head frees up mental energy for larger, more important endeavors. And each to-do item should be written down as soon as possible, transferred into a larger system, and then tagged with a context. This tool was amazing at helping me get all the small, predictable to-do items knocked out. When I used my phone, I called four people. My email inbox was always at zero, and shopping and food planning was never a surprise. However, I was never able to rise above the constant waves of tiny things to do. I never could sail out to sea and start a new adventure like writing a book. Managing daily life is a chore, but I have to do it. Creating an extraordinary life is the quiet time work I do when no one is looking, and it's that I need help with. I have watched a lot of self-help videos on YouTube and read a lot of books that offer a game plan for life. The benefits of these videos and books have never lasted long. I believe this is because my mind is populated with the same personalities as when I watched those videos or read those books. All of the metaf- all of the motivational quotes cannot remove a focusing agent that is currently running. The software can only be updated once the program is shut down. And thus, when a challenge presented itself like quitting my successful startup job, software job to build this startup, the, medita- the motivational phrases didn't do squat in the face of the lack of self-acceptance to attack the scary things or the self-belief to work late through the night. I need a focusing agent who's not like an insecure boss who tells me to work harder or blame someone else. I need a balance of perspectives, not a tyrant. I need to accept all the points of view and then choose the one that will lead me to the extraordinary life. Mr. Micromanager, I say to him while having my morning latte, you have served me well for a long time with only the best of intentions. The problem is, despite all the great things in our life, I am still unfulfilled and wanting, and you are unable to suggest a path, an attitude or perspective that will lead us towards living an extraordinary life, I say to him. What is this bullshit, Mr. Micromanager says. There's laundry to fold. That can wait, I say. You know, we've had a good run together. We have a great family, a beautiful partner, we live in the gorgeous countryside, And I've done a lot of great things in my life. But it's over. I've got to let you go. I know you'll find a new host. There's a hospital delivery room a quarter mile down the road. So please clean out your desk and exit out the ear canal before lunch. Mr. Micromanager is stunned. I imagine staring hard into his eyes like two spotlights. 
Something I remember reading in Steve Jobs did. And Mr. Micromanager cannot face me. I hug him, and he's indifferent. Slowly his appearance dissolves into nothing in my mind's eye. I look at the three new personalities sitting around the dining table in my mind. So, gentlemen, Mr. Micromanager is no longer in control. And I would like to welcome you, Mr. Bold, Mr. Terrifying, and Mr. Discomfort. They are in a bit of shock at having watched me fire their predecessor. None of them liked Mr. Micromanager, but it's still a reminder that a personality is just an algorithm of ideas, attitudes, and beliefs. No one thinks the same way forever. I can't promise you Mr. Micromanager won't show up again, I say. Maybe when I'm hungry, angry, or tired, he will be able to sneak an opportunity to shine but my goal is to have the three of you taking turns driving the train. Driving the train? Mr. DeComfort asks. You know all of us. This, the personalities, the memories, the emotions, all the mind, the body, the energy stuff, I say. Well, so what's your job? Mr. Terrifying asks. My job is to choose how we respond to life, I say. I am the point of view. And you are the personalities. I choose to live an extraordinary life, I say. And to date, I have been making unwise choices. We have been pushing an extraordinary life away from us instead of walking towards it. And I want y'all to advise me on how to respond to life so we reach that destination. Extraordinary this, extraordinary that. It keeps coming out of your mouth like diarrhea, Mr. Bold says as he pounds the table. What do you mean by that before I sign up for this one-way ticket to the laundry room? Mr. Bold continues, because I don't know if an extraordinary life is saying we should join Cirque du Soleil. Great question, Mr. Bold, I say. For me... Now as a 41-year-old designer, husband, father of two, it's those moments or islands of brilliance which were surrounded by years or oceans of resting on my laurels. It's playing the jokester, the storyteller, the soother, the sage, the mystic, playing the diplomat, playing the designer, and so on. These are the masks I've worn at school, work, and life, and only for brief flashes never long enough for the atoms of a life to assemble around me. Too often I listened to Mr. Micromanager, and too often I didn't pay attention to my feelings. I ran on autopilot. I believed what others were saying without question or pushing back, and so I allowed Mr. Micromanager, Mr. Victim, Mr. Worry, or Mr. Calculator, Mr. Blame Game, and... Mr. Lazy asked to drive the train. What about fear, Mr. Terrifying says. Aren't you afraid you'll be taken over by fear like before? No, I say. Fear is like the air, and there's no escaping it, ever. There's only recognizing when fear is about. And too often I didn't pay close enough attention 
and thus fear energized whichever personality was in control of my awareness. It gave them a power up, sometimes in a good direction, sometimes in a bad direction. It's like how someone drunk on alcohol might write beautiful poetry or might say the most hurtful insults. Those truths were always inside of him. It's just the alcohol gave him a power up to the personality that was in control and let those deep ideas out. I want us to find out how we are going to live differently together, I say. I don't believe the challenge will be finding good ideas or composing the right passages or even selecting the best words to publish. I believe it will be making a new set of choices each and every day. Waking early, reviewing the task board, ensuring a task is broken down, completing the tasks, making the deadlines, sharing, seeking feedback, inspecting the process, iterating the work. I say all these things to them. These things in themselves are not hard. It's choosing to do them when I get hungry, angry, and tired, and to choose them every day. That's when it's so easy to snack, Reddit, YouTube, video game, masturbate, and sleep, I say. I need y'all to push me to the unknown, to the scary, and to the uncomfortable, I say. So Mr. Bold, Mr. Terrifying, and Mr. Comfort, Discomfort, what do you say? Do you want to help me walk into this extraordinary life, I say? Will you push me to use my skills and to share so that others who may also be stuck will recognize that there is another choice, another door that can be chosen, and thus unstuck themselves? I stare at them with spotlights for eyes. Mr. Bold, Mr. Terrifying, and Mr. Discomfort, do not look away from my stare. Looking back at me, they say in unison, Well, we wouldn't recommend it, but yes, yes, yes. We will walk with you. So be it. That was a lot. That was a 20-minute piece. Read slowly. Maybe it was a 15-minute piece read quickly. Nevertheless, that was a piece of writing I produced a week ago. Or is it two weeks ago? I think it's two weeks ago, and then I had a week of kind of fine-tuning and doing some production and getting ready for this podcast. And it's the first piece I'm sharing. So, there's a lot of pieces, a lot of parts of that essay that I would like to take back, I would like to do over, I'd like to improve, but it's gone, it's in the can, it's shipped, and that feels good. It feels good because there was a lot of truth in that piece, that I have written a lot, I've done a lot, but I haven't shared, I haven't moved forward. I was reading a book about Scrum recently. In my former life, I used to be a Scrum master. This is a a popular role in software development to keep projects on track. And in this book, it talked about waste and said that waste is a crime. It talked about unfinished projects. And I couldn't think, couldn't help but think about my room and how many pieces of paper are lying around there, how many unfinished stories I got 
how much waste I've produced in a year. And you could say it's practice. You could say it's getting your sea legs. You could say all the different expressions. But at the end of the day, I haven't shared. I haven't published. I don't have a plan to get there. So that brings us to this podcast. This is the way in which I will share, the way in which I will pull the curtain back. I will allow you to see the process, to learn from it, for I think I have some things to share. Things as a scrum master, as a writer, as a meditator, as a father, as a houseman, as a New Yorker, and so on and so forth. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to start with a little bit of feedback. All right, I wrote that essay, and now i got to give myself some feedback on it. Someday, maybe you'll write, and you'll send me some feedback on that piece, but I can't necessarily count on that. So, I need to bring in three guests. Those guests are going to be Mr. Sonny, Mr. Critic, and Mr. Dreamer. And I'm guessing you can figure out their roles in the feedback process. Let's first hear from Mr. Sonny. You got something done. You shipped it. It's great work. It's substantial work. There's truth to that work. There's a lot of parts in there that people can resonate with. A lot of examples in there that work well. The title isn't necessarily a match for the content. Talking around the dining table in my mind when it's really just you talking. There's no dialogue. That's a little bit of a of a misnomer. And there's definitely some parts towards the end where it gets a little bit confusing. But again, it's substantive, it's long, you're sharing it, it's out there today. And that's something you should be really proud of. Your structure and your approach are sound too. You begin with a little anecdote. You exaggerate the implications of that anecdote. You move into sharing evidence. You say the implication of such evidence. And then you finish with trying to come up with a solution. It's a nice idea. Again, your ending could be a little bit tighter. And it's a long piece. There were moments in which I was falling asleep. There are moments in which your voice could be a little bit more excited. But nonetheless, we think you did a great job. Thank you. And now, Mr. Critic? Yeah. Mr. Sonny did my work for me. There's a shit ton of typos in there. Let's just be real about it. That audio doesn't match the text that's on medium.com, does it? No, you edited it on the fly. We need to get those a little bit better. That took you a week to do. A week to write ten pages? You gotta be a little bit faster than that if we're gonna get this novel done. But, I do like what you did. You defied the odds. You took care of the household. You took care of the kids. You didn't have any family help last week. Yeah, Mr. Sonny didn't mention that. But you didn't have much time to do this work, and you did it. You got it done. For that, hats off to you. Wow, Mr. Critic, thank you. 
That's very nice of you. Don't get used to it. <laughs> okay, last bit of feedback from Mr. Dreamer. Mr. Dreamer, what would you have to say? I like some of the ideas there. But I would like to hear them talk more. I'd like to hear more from Mr. Micromanager. I thought his one line was good. What is this bullshit? There's laundry to fold. I mean, that was pretty good. I like the honesty about what he said about your friends thinking you're pathetic. But I think we need to build out Mr. Bold and Mr. Terrifying and Mr. Discomfort. At the moment, they're just titles. What would Mr. Discomfort make you do? And what would you say to Mr. Discomfort if he told you you had to spend all night working or wake up every morning at four? And what would Mr. Discomfort look like and sound like? The stereotype is he'd be a drill sergeant, right? Barking and screaming. But what if he wasn't? Was Tony Dungy, former coach of the Tampa Bay Bucks, Indiana Colts, He's a Hall of Famer, won a Super Bowl. Was he a discomfortable coach? He must have if those teams won a Super Bowl. But he wasn't a screamer. I'd be really curious to see these characters as action figures. So I think you could push them. I think you could push them and put them in a room together and see what comes out. And I like the idea that you're still there, the point of view. You're unbiased and unfocused right now. You're, un you're unbiased at this moment, and you're clearly focused. But that's not a lot like life. Often in life, we are not clearly focused. We are emotional. We make choices that we wish we hadn't. And why is that? It's as if sometimes we're in a hall of mirrors, right? A fun house. And the mirrors give us a totally ridiculous reflection of who we are. Not accurate whatsoever, but a reflection. And then we act upon that reflection or react. So in this instance, the point of view yourself is very clear-headed. But that's not always the case, is it? So what is this mechanism that gets in the way of our clear thinking? What's in this mechanism that causes us to react to ridiculous, deformed reflections of ourselves? That could be cool to explore. All right, man. Right on. I dig that. Thank you, Mr. Sonny, Mr. Critic, Mr. Dreamer. Really great feedback. I can't promise you guys will be invited back again. You did a good job, but there are a bazillion personalities to hear from as well. No problem, no problem, no problem. So essentially, team, that's what this is. You've heard what I've written. You've heard some of the feedback that I gave upon myself. And that's really it. Um, a wise-ass response is essentially a commentary on responding to life. There is an idea that for a huge segment of the population, we don't need to create or to do anything in life. We just need to respond to it. And this isn't for everybody. There are individuals that are generators that want to generate and make life, make things within it. 
But I think there is a large segment of the population, too, that can make through response. And that's the point of this. Let's respond to life wisely. So as we move on in the coming weeks, we'll get into different topics and different themes. We'll do a little bits of meditation here and there. But for this first one, that's it. Now what we're going to do now is move into the Sprint Retrospective. The Sprint Retrospective is, again, a very software title. But the retrospective essentially looks back on the process that we took to getting here. A great book on this thing is called Agile Retrospectives. Um, you can find this on Amazon. I'm forgetting the two women who authored it. But again, Agile Retrospective, a fantastic book about the point and the process of doing these. And this isn't for software. I want to write a book using this methodology. So I think it has some things to share and some value for you. So this, initially what we do at the start of the retrospective is we ask each team member to check in. And we do this because we want to make sure that everyone is going to participate. And by asking someone to check in with one or two words at the beginning, you can count on them participating throughout the end. So let me ask myself right now, how am I feeling at the end of this first two weeks? Pretty good. I'm pretty happy with where we're at. I'm happy that we shipped, that we accomplished something, that we're doing this podcast. It's messy, it's ugly, the quality or the polish is not where I want it to be, and it's scary as all get out uploading content that isn't nearly as polished as I'd want it. But it's there, and that's what we need to get done. Quality is a process, quality is not a point in time. And we are moving into higher quality over time by getting this out there. Yes. Okay, so more than one word there, but I think we get an idea. Um, now, as before we move on to looking at the data for the sprint for the past two weeks, can we go over the working agreements that you have put in place for your team? Yeah, um, essentially a working agreement or a set of ground rules. And as a team-based event that a re retrospective is, a working agreement is really important and critical. It's like telling the rules before you start the game. And often, if you didn't, don't do that, people don't know necessarily how to behave. So going over the rules ahead of time makes a lot of sense. Uh, the working agreements for this sprint review, sprint retrospective, are all aspects of myself are invited to participate. The critical, the positive, the friendly, the mean, the blasé, whatever. Um, this is an uninterrupted and distraction-free time. That means no redditing, no web surfing, no email, no text messaging, none of that nonsense. We're going to own the truth here, especially if it's uncomfortable. Owning the truth. If we own it, we can run with it. If we can run with it, we can go in any direction we want. But when we can't face the truth our options for running are much, much smaller. And incremental improvement is improvement. That's what we're aiming for. Small improvements every week. We're going to get this. 
and we're going to publish this book and it's going to take incremental improvements every single week to get there. But this process works. I've done it for many years in a former life and I'm bringing it now to this life. All right, good. So let's look at some data. Let's look at something that we can work with, uh, essentially to kind of inspect how the process went. And what data would that be? Um, that would really be our timesheet for one, um, along with say our Trello board. The timesheet is uh, coming from an app called Harvest. Harvest is a great time tracking uh, product that you can get online for free. Uh, just for yourself, if you have a team that you want to use it for, you will have to purchase it. But if you're doing a project like this, uh, where it's just one individual, it is for free. So um, essentially, if we go through, when would we start at this on Monday, June 4th? If we go through and look at that, we can see that our pretty much average daily output was around three hours. Uh, we had one day in which we only put in an hour, and then we have some days in which we put in as much as three and a half hours. Uh, but again, as a houseman, my primary job as a houseman, three and a half hours seemed to really push it. What made up the three and a half hours? Uh, I did include exercise and meditation within there. Um, while those aren't key to necessarily writing a book, uh, they're key to living a happy life. So that's why I had to include meditation and exercise within that. Um, meditation and exercise, just as an aside, would either be a combination of, of uh, uh, functional weight training or yoga and then um, uh, an open-ended, unguided meditation something akin to Zen where you don't have any sort of guidance like guidance of the breath or guidance of a mantra or guidance of a, of, a, um, of, of, of anything. It's just be in that period of time and of all observation. Um, invariably though, I would bring awareness and attention to the spine. Um, and that is a, a technique that I learned a long time ago. And at one point we'll get into uh, the, the movement and the awareness that one does up and down the spine during meditation. Um, meditation and exercise happen pretty much every day. And so that was pretty much consistent to have about an hour to an hour and a half of that. So if I did a day of three and a half hours of work, an hour and a half would be meditation exercise. And then we have two hours of, of work. So what would take up work, um, writing, um, my approach would to go would be with uh, free write process. From the free writing process of about 20 minutes on the computer, I would then print that out or read it on screen and then summarize what I found in my journal. Uh, summarizing uh, through the pen in the journal came about about halfway through the week, discovering that I was getting too easily distracted um, with the internet. I think that's probably been the biggest finding is the distractiveness of myself um, and that I am so quick to shift a tab, to open a new tab, to pull up a website, and it can be any website. It's just breaking the attention. And, and maybe this is particularly ironic given that I say I meditate so much, but I think it's more 
my desire to avoid the discomfort of sticking with writing. At times it feels like you're in a sauna as you need to push and push an idea and to stay with it and to work on something rather than run off to something else. I can even look back at my past year of writing 600 pages for this novel and so much of that effort was let me start something new, let me start something new. I don't want to go back over and rework. I don't want to be disciplined on a particular passage or a particular section of it. Um, you know, what's nice about the Harvest app is I can look at it from a daily basis, the time from a daily basis, well as well as a weekly basis, and so I can see uh, where I put in my time. So um, for the week of, of June 4th, uh, I put in about 10 hours of writing. Uh, the second most popular exercise was, was edit, exercise and meditation, which was about um, six and a half hours. Uh, there was about just over two and a half hours of project management. Um, we'll get into a little bit of that. A little bit of research, which I would say really was underreported. I listened to a lot more audiobooks and watched a lot more YouTube videos than what I reported as just a half an hour. Um, the second week, um, not as much writing. The writing went down, I would say, by about half to just under five hours of writing, the exercise and meditation stayed the same. Um, a bunch of other activities added up. Graphic design, looking for artwork, um, doing some social media work, uh, not as much project management. Um, and I think that week I actually upped my reporting of the research tasks. So that's the data. If we were doing this in a conference room, there might be a whiteboard and there might be sticky notes going up and down the board as we start to call out things that worked well and things that didn't work so well. As I go through this, I can tell the audience right now that what didn't work so well was the week of writing. In the sense, it took me a full solid week to get a 10-page essay completed that was, I think, partially because of the definition of the assignment. It started out working from a free write project, and then I moved that free write in, into a structure, into a, a story that I think moved glacially slow in the editing process. And it could have been sped up, and it did get, did get faster when I move from the, the process of free writing to summarizing in a journal, then to rewriting again. One thing I remember reading in a book called The Teacherless Writing Class was the advice to just rewrite a draft cold. And essentially just don't try to edit an existing draft, but just retype everything without looking at the past, past draft. I sped my process up when I did that, um, but I did feel the fear of, but I've already written all of this stuff, why would I do that? But I moved so much faster when I wrote again, and I did find passages were uh, much more powerful because they had the spontaneous stream of consciousness coming, but at the same time, they were guided from the past draft. So 
as we move forward into the next week, I believe the process will um, will benefit, and I probably will move a lot faster than this initial work initial week. Um, yeah, creating a podcast are there's a lot of components to it, and I didn't want to give up my exercise and meditation time, nor uh, my research time, nor my writing time, and so the amount of time and bandwidth I was able to put towards graphic design and social media for this um, kind of isn't enough. Uh, and so we're going to go live and we're going to ship with very placeholder artwork and content. Um, and it will allow us to move forward. It will allow us to move forward, but it's not necessarily ideal. Um, I'm going to pull up uh, the Trello board that I used for this project. Um, Trello has... Um, a free component to it. It's a fairly limited free component, but there is a free aspect to it. Um, it is essentially a kind of an, an online uh, whiteboarding tool, and that's a terrible description for it. It's really a, an online uh, Kanban tool. Kanban is, I believe, is a Japanese term for a type of um, uh, efficiency process. That's also a terrible way of describing it. Um, a Trello allows you to create columns, and within a column, you can populate it with cards. The cards can um, be given a title and descriptions and checklists. There's many add-ons that you can have, so you can do interesting things with these cards. You can assign cards to people, and you can bring a team inside. You can assign cards to files and files to cards, and so you can really begin to use Trello um, and its column and card-based system as a way of, of, uh, of, of doing something that you would do on a whiteboard um, or on a large piece of foam core with dedicated printed out cards and sticky notes and whatnot. So I'm using a free version of Trello. I have a number of columns or, sorry, lists as they call it. Uh, these lists are made up of backlogs, such as a research backlog, a content backlog, a social media backlog. A backlog is a scrum term for just an inventory. And um, then I have three columns which I use on a day-to-day -day basis, and that was the Sprint 1 backlog, the Sprint 1 doing, and the Sprint 1 done. Um, at the start of the sprint, you move items from the backlogs, the various columns into your Sprint 1 backlog. And then during the sprint, as you are working, you would take one of those cards and move it into the doing column. When it's finished, you would move it into done. That's at a, at a base level what you do. There are some techniques by uh, assigning value to the cards, to the, to the items in the columns that will allow you to understand how much work you're doing and this is useful for planning things out in the future. So if you determine and you discover how much value you're able to complete in one sprint, you might be able to extrapolate how much value you'll be able to push through over the course of several sprints. And this can be interesting when you want to, say, plan out uh, the release of a book. Okay, well, I was able to accomplish this much in two sprints, and I have all of this other work that needs to get done, I think I can estimate that it will take me so and so long. Um, I've never seen that work successfully in software companies, and I've used this approach in uh, three companies, 
So uh, while it's there, I've never seen the reality of assigning value uh, to to stories, to cards, um, in the estimation uh, point. The value really comes in helping you break down your items and helping you evaluate, have I defined this task tiny enough? The tinier the definition of a task, the more likely you are to accomplish it quickly. The vague, a vague, broad task will most likely take a long time to complete because you don't have an understanding of what really needs to get done. Uh, and that's definitely came up in this uh, sprint where I had a task which was to rejigger the first draft of this essay and it was probably on the doing column for three or four days. And that is just way too long. It, 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 it screams that there is something wrong with the definition of that task. So I think as I move forward into the next, it's about being better at breaking down the tasks. Um, initially, this sprint was a one-week sprint, not a two-week sprint, and it was way too much work. I was way, way, way too ambitious, given my responsibilities as a houseman, to get all of this done in just a week. So I changed it to two weeks um, after the first week. And I didn't feel the need to just shut down the sprint and then start a whole new setup. I just extended it out two weeks. Um, moving forward, I like the rhythm of a two-week sprint for me, particularly because it seems like three and a half hours a day is the most I'm going to be able to work on this project. And thus then, I like the idea of being able to do um, a week of writing and then move into a week of design, a week of uh, social media, a week of getting things ready for sharing. Um, up to this point, my process has always been just pure writing and no sharing and no design and none of that. I have done some sketching in the past in my sketchbook related to the characters and the locations, but I think by, by baking that into the sprint ahead of time, it will happen on a more consistent basis. So I like the cadence of a, of a two-week sprint rather than a one-week sprint. Um, as again, as I, I said, I had a couple of, of tasks in here that were not particularly well-defined. I had some tasks that were very well-defined, such as download the next audiobook. And this I gave a uh, value, the most basic value you could give. But a task broken down like that made it very easy to, um, to complete. Um, you know, another one that was very, uh, very good was to just extract some content for, uh, tweeting. Uh, another one was to upload the content to medium. These are very, very tactical, um, small tasks that you can get a number of them done in a single day. It keeps you busy. It moves you forward. You don't have to think about it. It frees up your energy for some larger things to do. Um, an example of a task very poorly defined was um, was a very poorly defined task was apply user centered case to third draft. Um, user centered case is my description for uh, a story structure that I encountered uh, in grad school. It's not anything that you can't learn about uh, online. It's simply 
just uh, old school rhetoric and approaches to rhetoric. And if you start Googling rhetoric and what that means, you'll start to understand uh, some of the, the things that are behind when I say user-centered case. So um, applying this to the third draft was, it's a very broad, broadly defined statement. And thus, for I think three or four days, this story was in my doing column and it wasn't moving out, it wasn't changing. That's just, that's a, a red flag that it could have been done differently. So if I had to change it differently, it might have been to create an outline um, and then from that outline, maybe flesh out um, the, the opening um, opening section, then move into the evidence section uh, or the observation section, then move into the competitive section, then move into the solution. Those opening uh, observation, competitive solution, those are all, would have all been in themselves uh, discrete and separate stories. Um, and in doing that, I would have been able to say, okay, this morning I'm just focusing on intro, or today I'm just focusing on solution. And that way I would have been able to, I think, gotten to a completed draft faster. Um, so that's this is good to do. You know, you're always going to uh, be working to get your tasks defined as small as possible. And the the, the point of, of assigning value, and we can talk about value at another time, isn't so much, I think, really in the pointing so that you can come up with estimates for how quickly you work, but is in really going back over your task and saying, well, if I think this task is such and such value, what does that mean in relation to another task I have? And thus then you start to wonder, really, what is in this task? And can I break this down even smaller? It's that kind of second, third time looking at a task that while you hear this might think like, wow, it's a lot of overhead at the end of the day, the more tight, tightly defined, smaller defined your task is, the more likely you are to achieve it and accomplish it. And if you achieve it and accomplish it, then you're moving to shipping. And so that's what we always want to be doing. Um, that's just experience from doing it at three companies over the course of three years, maybe, maybe longer, four years as a scrum master. I don't remember. Um, yeah, it was a while and I was really good at it. I enjoy it. And I didn't do it on, on my own project. I didn't do it on my own project for over a year. I allowed a lot of waste to develop to accrue. And I allowed that to happen. I'm not certainly why, but I'm so glad I did because now I can come here and talk to you about this and we'll be bringing updates to this process every two weeks or so. So um, that's a little bit of an inspection of the data. Again, if this was in a whiteboard in, in a conference room with a whiteboard, we would have sticky notes. All of this content would be up there on the sticky notes if you'd have teams say five or six people, people would be organizing their thoughts and concerns and frustrations into to groups. We would be labeling those groups or clusters. We would then be voting on ideas by which we could maybe solve those inefficiencies or problems or frustrations that came out of all of those sticky notes. For myself, I think I already did a good job of defining where I felt the problem was. Um, it was, you know, one, being overly ambitious with a one-week sprint initially, and then two, not having tasks that were um, 
defined small enough so that I could achieve them given uh, the limited amount of time I have. So as we move into the next sprint, um, the next sprint is really going to be about then making sure my tasks are as, as, as defined as t small as possible. So what's the experiment? How are we going to be able to verify that we have done that? Um, I think it means ensuring that we have a title for the task, but then we also have a definition of done. Um, what is a, a one-line or two-line statement we can put into this task that will help me know when it's done? Um, we need to assign points value. We need to be able to go over the points value, uh, compare all the tasks per point value, and use that comparison time as an opportunity to examine, can I break this down even smaller? Um, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to make sure that we have definitions of done and that we can go over and compare um, a couple of times to make sure we break down our tasks as, as tiny as possible. So we're going to do that, and um, we're going to bring those actions into the planning meeting. And the planning meeting uh, will happen offline, and I look forward to having the next podcast with you the next time we get together in which I get to share some of these ideas. As I said, we'll be moving into other topics like meditation and writing and um, raising families and kids, talking about Germany where I live right now and, and other parts of the world and things that I've done. But this has been fun, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Bye-bye.